Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The story of the two disciples who were walking to Emmaus and were joined by the risen Jesus is, at one and the same time, both simple and strange. The risen Jesus is there with them, and yet they are somehow prevented from recognizing him. Is that intended to be some sort of miraculous confusion of their vision? And then there is the dramatic reveal that it is indeed Jesus, but he is only revealed when the bread is broken at supper, at which point he immediately disappears. I think that there are a number of hints in the way that the story is told that indicate that we are not supposed to just read it as a simple historical tale. It is dripping with symbolism and barely hidden meaning. The author clearly intends us to read between the lines. But we sometimes miss that in our obsessive focus on the plain meaning of the text. Perhaps a retelling of the story from a bit of a different angle might help us to get at what the author was intending to say. Let's give it a try, shall we? This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 3.4 When the Bread Was Broken It was early Sunday morning when Cleopas and his wife Marta left Jerusalem to return home to Emmaus. They had been caught in the city when the Sabbath had fallen on Friday evening, but had managed to find some friends to spend the day with. It had been a pleasant enough time, and very meaningful for them to gather together with that family for their Sabbath meal. But the talk had been somewhat disturbing. Their hosts had been among those people in Jerusalem who had been caught up in the excitement about a man from Nazareth in Galilee. In recent days he had come to Jerusalem during the Passover feast. Marta and Cleopas had also been very sympathetic to the message of this man and excited by the things that he had said concerning the coming kingdom of God. But the reality was that once the man had arrived at the festival, Almost everything had gone wrong. He had provoked a disturbance in the temple at the worst possible time in the run-up to the Passover festival. You see, the Romans were always on a hair trigger at that time of the year, and you could understand why. The Passover was the annual celebration of the time when the God of Israel claimed his people by setting them free from slavery. 
It was an annual reminder that, as a people, they were to serve their God and only their God. They were to be slaves to no one else. That incredible declaration of freedom was rather embarrassing in the face of the hard reality that people lived in under Roman occupation. How could they be servants of God when they owed daily service to the emperor of Rome? And so the population was always unruly during the festival, which made the Roman governor inclined to punish anything that seemed at all rebellious, swiftly and brutally. So it really was no surprise when this Jesus of Nazareth was quickly arrested and executed in a most brutal manner. It was so sad and disappointing, but it was also not all that surprising. As Judeans, Cleopas and Marta had honestly gotten kind of used to being ultimately disappointed by anyone who dared to offer the people hope. They had been ready to move on with the unrelenting disappointment that was their lives. But the talk during the Sabbath dinner had been unnerving. The people who had followed this fellow to Jerusalem, particularly his Galilean followers, many of whom had not left the city in the wake of that disastrous Passover, had begun to tell stories. Everyone acknowledged that this Jesus was dead. There were a few witnesses who declared that they had seen him up on a cross, albeit from a great distance. The word was that he had died quickly and been buried in a hurry before the eve of the Sabbath during Passover. But then the stories had started. People claimed to have seen him, to have spoken with him, even to have eaten with him. They were comforting stories, but they didn't sound particularly realistic. There was one story that had spread like wildfire about a group of women who had found out where he had been buried and went out to grieve and mourn and do the rituals that women always do after the death of a loved one. They had found the place where he was supposed to be buried, but could not find his body. Most stunningly, however, they had had a vision in which angels had appeared to them, and spoken and told them that the man was no longer dead, that he had risen. Cleopas and Marta understood why these stories were spreading and why they were so popular. It was a wonderful fantasy to think that this man, and, more importantly, everything that he had stood for, still had a chance of hope. But surely it was only that, a fantasy. And surely the fantasy would soon come crashing down, leaving the people believing in these stories even more devastated and destroyed. So, as they walked along their way, Cleopas and Marta spoke of these things, and as much as they would like to feel differently, the whole matter only served to make them despondent. It seemed as if people were becoming delusional. That didn't make them hopeful for the future. It made them very fearful. The stranger came along shortly after they left the city gates. He was obviously walking on the same route as them and only a few steps behind. 
and we all know how awkward that can be. Somebody else is, is right there, keeping pace with you, and as much as you might pretend otherwise, you know he can hear every word you are saying. You can no longer speak confidentially. And so Cleopas and Marta fell silent for a while. And when that became too awkward, Cleopas turned and spoke to the stranger. Soon the three were walking along together and conversing. But as much as the couple sought to keep their conversation on light and unimportant topics like the weather and their predictions for the next olive harvest, the man seemed to want to steer it back into more disturbing territory. As I came upon you, he said, you seem to be speaking earnestly with each other on a topic that troubled you. What was it that affected you so? And before they knew it, the couple began to share all of their concerns about recent events and what some of their friends in Jerusalem had been saying. It actually felt kind of good to have somebody else to talk about concerning these things. And the man just listened to them at first, asking a few probing questions. His questions made them realize how little they knew about what had actually happened. That the man had been crucified by the Romans seemed a reasonable assumptions. That's what Romans did to people like him, who caused trouble. And yes, there were some in the community who said they saw it from a distance, but they very clearly did not to dare to go very near. Could they have been mistaken? It wasn't impossible, however unlikely. Now, the stranger who was walking with them said that he knew nothing of these events, but, he said, if it is true, as you seem to be suggesting, that this man was the Anointed One and the fulfillment of the promises of God, I don't know how it could have gone down any differently. And with that the man began to talk about the Scriptures, the stories of Moses and the prophets and the writings of poets like David. Surely, he said, these writings would tell you everything you need to know about the man. He began to talk, for example, of Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, and how his brothers were jealous of him and sought to get rid of him. Did it not happen at a meal, he said, that the brothers were eating together, and one of them, the brother Judah, came up with an idea. He said that they should sell their brother, betray him by giving him over to the slavers. And so it was that Judah sold Joseph for twenty pieces of silver. Tell me then, this Jesus of yours, did he have a group of supporters around him? And were there twelve of them, like the twelve sons of Jacob? The couple agreed that they had heard that this was so. And tell me, the stranger continued, was one of these disciples named Judah, or, as we would say it today, Judas? Marta was amazed at what the stranger was saying. You know, she said, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I heard that there was a Judas, maybe even a couple of Judases among this man's disciples. Surely you must be correct. 
That is exactly how it happened. He must have been betrayed by Judas. Judas must have received twenty pieces of silver. Cleopas, for his part, didn't disagree with what his wife said. But the thought did occur to him that Judas was about the second most common name in the region of Galilee. The stranger seemed to have an excellent knowledge of the stories and traditions of the people of Israel. Insisting that he knew nothing of this Jesus of Nazareth or what he had done, he argued that if the man truly had come from God, that the things that happened to him must have all been foreseen in the scriptures. You say the man was crucified, he asked. They assured him that indeed he must have been. Well then, do we not know exactly how it happened? For did not David leave us a description of what it would have been like? I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. Marta could feel the tears coming to her eyes at the thought of what he must have endured. But she nodded her head. Yes. Yes, of course, you're right. How horrible it must have been for him. The man had much more to say, so much more, in fact, that it might take months of discussion to grasp the meaning of it all. But the more that the couple discussed together with him, the more convinced they became that everything that had happened to Jesus had been anticipated by the scriptures and traditions of their people. It was about seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, where Cleopas and Marta lived. After about three hours walking with the stranger, they finally saw their home in the distance. They were weary and hungry and longed to go inside for a meal. But they also did not want to interrupt their fascinating conversation with the stranger. They also felt, at the very least, that they should offer him hospitality. He seemed intent to go on further, but they pressed him to come into their house and stay for a while, at least for a meal. Among the followers of Jesus, even during his life, the idea of sharing a meal with people had taken on new and different meaning. When people gathered around the table in that world, it was always an exercise in careful stratification and exclusion. That is to say, there were just some people that you didn't eat with. Men didn't eat with women. People didn't eat with those who were lower in social status than they were. Nobody but tax collectors ate with tax collectors. It was just the way things were, and nobody challenged it. Nobody dared to flaunt these rules. That is, until Jesus came along. He, he just didn't care. He didn't care about proper decorum at meals. 
He didn't care about status or gender or job description when it came to breaking bread with anybody. It was a continual scandal that chased him throughout his entire ministry. Honestly, it was probably one good reason why nobody dared to defend him when finally even the Romans turned against him. Those who loved him and followed him struggled with the ways in which he shared his table. But many, over time, came to appreciate it. They saw what it did for people. People who had never known anything but rejection to find welcome at his table. It changed people's lives. So, as people looked back and remembered Jesus and what he had done, the one image that always came to mind was of Jesus sharing a table. There was always a certain ceremony to it. He would always take the place at the head of the table, the place of the host, even though more often than not, it was not his own table that he presided over, but the table of someone who had offered him hospitality. And when it came time to eat, Jesus himself would take the bread, which was, once again, the thing that was normally done by the host or the patriarch of the family. And he would offer the prayer of thanksgiving to God, who brings forth grain from the earth. But then, oddly, Jesus would shift and take on the role of a servant by breaking the bread and distributing it to all of the people around the table, no matter what their status. It was just such an odd way to share a meal with people that everyone noticed it, and people couldn't help but talk about it. It was one of those strange quirks that everyone remarked on in Jesus. When Marta and Cleopas invited the stranger with whom they had been walking and talking all day into their home for supper, something strange and unexpected happened. When the simple meal was ready and the three gathered around the table, the stranger, without being invited, and despite the fact that the role properly belonged to Cleopas and to nobody else, took the place at the head of the table. Though he was in the home of another, it was he who took the bread, and raising his eyes to heaven, thanked the giver of the grain. And then, without missing a beat, he broke the bread and distributed it among the three of them. It was, you might say, both strange and familiar at the same time. It was something that nobody ever did, and it was something that one particular person always did. But this was not that person. As the couple struggled to interpret what they were seeing, the cognitive dissonance overwhelmed them. You might say that it forced them into an alternate mental state, which allowed them to see something in this situation that they could never have seen otherwise. Marta and Cleopas exchanged glances. They didn't need to say anything because they both knew what the other was thinking. Their friends in Jerusalem were correct. 
the crucifixion had not been the end of Jesus' story. The stories that were being told and spread among the community of his followers weren't fantasy or wishful thinking. They were true. The man was not dead. He was alive. They didn't really understand how he could be alive in this man that they did not recognize, but they also knew that that didn't really matter. As he had spoken to them about the traditions of their people while they walked along the road, and how they all pointed to the story of the man from Nazareth, had not their hearts burned within them? Had they not known that it was all true? It didn't matter that they didn't recognize the man's features, because they recognized his actions, and their hearts had burned at his words while they traveled. They knew that he was present at this meal. And that was all that mattered. The certainty that they were indeed in the presence of the risen Jesus was fleeting. They knew it, but only for a moment. And afterwards, their skeptical minds took over again and told them that such a thing was not possible. It could not be. But none of that really mattered, because they knew they had known. And that was all they needed to know. The man went on his way soon afterwards. He didn't offer any explanation for the things that he had done or said, and they didn't ask. They didn't need to. now completely dark outside, but they didn't care. The moon shone bright that night, and they knew the way back to Jerusalem, so they just set out, and were standing outside the gates of the city when those gates opened in the morning. They knew that they had to be back with their friends in Jerusalem as soon as they possibly could. They had to share the amazing experience that they had had tell their friends that they were right, and that the man's crucifixion had definitely not been the end of his story. But their mission was not merely to pass on what they had experienced. They knew that the sooner they gathered with other believers, like them, the sooner they discussed with them the scriptures and what they taught about the life and work and ministry of Jesus, the sooner that they broke bread together just as he had done. The day when they did all of that, they knew, would be the day when they had an opportunity to experience it all yet again. The story of the walk to Emmaus in the final chapter of the Gospel of Luke is presented as just another part of the story of Easter. 
It is told as if it is just a one-time appearance of the risen Jesus to two particular people. But there are a number of things in the story itself that seem to indicate that we ought not to read it as a simple narrative. The two disciples, one of whom is named and the other is not, are pretty clearly meant to symbolize the Christian church. They have come together on a Sunday, the first day of the week. They spend time discussing the scriptures, readings from what we call the Old Testament, and considering what they might reveal about the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth. Most significantly, they gather to break bread. These three things, meeting on Sunday, discussing the scriptures and breaking bread, were common to every early Christian group that we can identify. It was what the early church did. So, by including this story in his gospel, the author was not simply saying that this was something that happened one time on Easter Day. He was promising in his readers that this was something that would continue to happen to the church when they gathered on Sundays, when they read the scriptures and broke bread together, they would discover all of the proof that they needed that, the, that Jesus Christ was really risen from the dead because the risen Jesus would join them in their gatherings. This story, in other words, was not trying to pr prove the reality of the resurrection by adding the testimony of two more witnesses. It was inviting the readers to experience the truth of the resurrection for themselves in the gathering of the church for worship and communion. I wanted to tell or retell the story in a way that brought out that intended meaning. One little note on an extra detail. The story in the Gospel of Luke only names one disciple, Cleopas. I have written under the assumption that the unnamed disciple is a woman and the wife of the named one. I would just like to point out that this is not just a narrative choice. A number of commentators on this passage have pointed out that it was common in that world at that time when people were told of two individuals, one male and named and the other unnamed, for people to assume that the unnamed individual was indeed a woman. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please come back at the end of next month for another episode. In the meantime, tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for the podcast is Da by Kevin MacLeod. The mood music for this episode is Willow and the Light. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and you will find links to it in the show notes. Send your requests, comments, and questions to Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.